Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Today, of course, we're absolutely delighted to have Randy Shaw with Generation Priced Out, Who Gets to Live in the New Urban America? Randy Shaw is a homeless advocate and director of San Francisco's Tenderloin Housing Clinic. He's an attorney, author, and activist. He's drafted legislation. He's worked on national housing advocacy. He's written six books, and he's from Los Angeles. I know. I, I love the local brand. Um, this book has gotten so well received. You will love it. It's so vital. It's so interesting. Um, Generation Priced Out has been called powerful, passionate, important, inclusive, and inspiration, a reckoning, damning, detailed, concrete, crucial, historical, personal, a wake-up call, a call to action, a must-read, unique, strong, and great. Let's please give him a warm round of applause. And of course, I want to thank Skylight Books, and hopefully all of you who haven't already bought the book will buy it here from Skylight, because supporting authors like myself is a very, you know, this commitment that shows from Skylight. And I also thanked her for getting me out of the Bay Area and this weekend. I love coming to Blue Sky, L.A. Great air quality here. Never had to say that before. So, you know, uh, I did grow up in L.A., but first I want, I want to say, I ended up writing this book because so many people ask me, because I write, my organization is the largest provider of permanent housing for homeless single adults, and so, you know, and my whole history is with, like, SRO hotels and with low-income tenants, and people say, you know, what ended up, why did you write this book? And I really, it's that rare time where I know exactly when I decided to write this book. There are some seats, by the way, those of you standing, feel free to, I won't be bothered, just come on and sit down. Uh, do people here remember the ghost ship fire in Oakland on December 2nd, 2016? 36 people died in a warehouse fire. It was a warehouse where there were all these people living illegally. Uh, and it wasn't, the, the fire ended up, they used to have musical performances in the evenings. And a fire broke out on the second floor. And only one of the people who died was residents. But it, it said to me, when that fire happened, like something is really wrong with our progressive cities that Oakland, and if you know, Oakland was always the affordable alternative to San Francisco. It was always be, hey, I can't afford San Francisco anymore, I'm going over to Oakland. And now all these artists and bohemians couldn't even afford to live in safe and habitable housing in Oakland. So I originally was going to write a book just about Oakland, Berkeley, and, and San Francisco, and about the three really, the most, I mean, there were the three of the most five most pro, in terms of voting in 2016, they gave the smallest percentages of Donald Trump in the country, of any major city, under 5%, all three of them. But meanwhile, they were excluding the working and middle class through their housing policies. But as I got into it, I realized, you know, this is happening like in, in all of our major cities. And I obviously first thought of Los Angeles, being from Los Angeles, and I follow it very closely. Of course, I was, when I grew up in Los Angeles, I lived on the west side. Uh, we didn't come over to this part of town too often. <laughs> yeah. Now, I used to collect autographs of, built, of baseball players, and the teams would stay at the Biltmore and then the Ambassador Hotel, which has since been uh, demolished. Uh, so I would come out to the Biltmore, and I'd know the downtown. And if, there, if, you're, and if you went to the Amundsen Theater or the Mark Taper Forum, 
but nobody came out here. And if somebody, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, a friend of my father, uh, grew up in Boyle Heights, he's Jewish. And if I had said, gee, Ted, you know, I'm really worried about Boyle Heights gentrification, he would have thought I was crazy, you know, Boyle Heights gentrification. So where L.A., I think, differs from dramatically from San Francisco and New York City is that our gentrification, those two cities, it really started in the late 70s, and there was a central place, and people, young people came back. We called them yuppies. Do people remember that term, yuppies? So they came back, and the, the process, I mean, San Francisco became widely gentrified in the 80s. When I came to my 10 year, I went to University High School. Anyone here from Uni High? I went to Uni High. And uh, people know where that is? That's like on the west side, you know, it's, uh, near Westwood. If you live in Westwood, you go to Uni High. So uh, for my 10th reunion, I found that all the people who still lived in LA, none of them could afford to live on the west side. This was in the 80s, 84. They already, but they're moving to like Silver Lake, Eagle Rock, you know, the valley. Uh, they were moving to Highland Park which I had never heard of until five years ago. Uh, so the point being is that LA, even as of 2010, did not suffer from the deep unaffordability that it suffers from today. And I discuss in the book how we got to this point and how I think we can change things because it's all really a question of policies. LA, there's the, the key for all the cities to dealing with affordability is you have to protect tenants, protect rental housing, and build housing. Unfortunately, LA did not do a very good job on protecting tenants, protecting rental housing, or building housing. And you know, I, I use some micro examples in the book of certain neighborhoods where this carried out. And I just want to mention Boyle Heights because I really kind of love that neighborhood. Remember, you know, because I work in the Tenderloin, which is the only non-gentrified neighborhood of San Francisco. So I, I always kind of like that that lower income community. And I look at that and I say, well, the only reason, like, how can we save Boyle Heights? And the strategies are, I think, rather clear. You have to build a lot of affordable housing there. And when I was walking with Jerry Jones here from Minnesota Law Center, which was, we were touring around yesterday, I noticed right across the street from Mariachi Plaza is a big parking lot. Why don't we get affordable housing built there? And there's a parking lot adjacent to Mariachi Plaza, which I guess the, the council member spent five years opposing, but now it's going forward. So that is going to be built. But you have to be proactive on this stuff. And LA has not been proactive enough in building affordable housing. So what happens is that as each neighborhood becomes, prices out a certain group, once Silver Lake was expensive, I, well, I'm priced out of Silver Lake. Well, what about this Highland Park? It's got nice craftsman homes, right? And unless you do something to interfere with that and build affordable housing before, before the people are already acquiring all the land. Because what I talk about in the book, the difference between like the Tenderloin, you've all heard of the Mission District in San Francisco. It might surprise you to know the mission went from 2003 to 2015 not, bu not building any affordable housing. Meanwhile, the tenor where I am, they're acquiring sites left and right. You might remember the economy was down. Land was cheap. Why wasn't the mission buying, acquiring affordable housing? Lack of foresight, lack of strategy. So you have to seize opportunities 
and there needs to be that kind of aggressive activism. Now, I write in the book about the eviction of the Marriott. Is Tyler here, Tyler Anderson? Because I wouldn't recognize him. The lawyer. I write about that whole Marriott. People want that whole case where they're evicting the Marriott's from Marriott Plaza so they can create the Marriott apartments. I'm not making that up. I mean, incredible arrogance. And fortunately, I don't know if any folks from Boyle Heights are here, but Boyle Heights activists to defend Boyle Heights really came to the fore and engaged in some very aggressive tactics that even led to an L.A. Times editorial saying, these guys are way off base. And do you remember that? Maybe you guys do. And I write in the book why those tactics were right. You have to use a by-all-means-necessary approach when you're dealing with the future of a community. And had the activists said, oh, oh, well, you know, we want the LA Times to like us, so we're not going to do anything too aggressive or confrontational, what would that say to the tenants of that neighborhood and that building? Who does, who's loyal to them? You have to stand up for their interests. And it ultimately worked. And I describe it as it's a great story. If you don't know it, it's all in the book about how what looked like a hopeless legal case due to community pressure. DSA Los Angeles was out there protesting and the LA Tenants Union were out there protesting at the house of the landlord. That's fair game. He's throwing people out of their homes. He's wrecking their lives. These mariachis have to live near Mariachi Plaza. That's their livelihood. So all that is necessary. And uh, I always say, we didn't see that in Highland Park. Anyone here live in Highland Park? Uh, we didn't see that Highland Park just like got gentrified like without even a, the kind of struggle that we really needed to see because it happened so quick because people weren't thinking about it. Every neighborhood is, sub is at risk in L.A. And that's what I think is the lesson of the last five years is, again, in 2000, if you'd said that Boyle Heights or Highland Park would be gentrified, I think you'd say, that doesn't make sense. It couldn't happen. I also write, I grew up near Venice. Do people know of anyone here from Venice? Uh, I used to think until I wrote this book that Venice was like the most progressive neighborhood in L.A. Anyone else think that? Because I'm going to disabuse you of that. Maybe you guys know. <laughs> Maybe you guys know. I, I, I don't want, okay, because, so, there's, the, you know, Venice has one of the worst homeless problems outside Skid Row. Maybe the worst. You know, you go to Venice and it's like, it's like people sit in tents everywhere. Yet they don't ever build any nonprofit housing. They don't provide services. And I talk a lot in the book about boomer homeowners who oppose housing everywhere of all income levels. Venice is their heart, their center. I mean, these folks in Venice, they don't want anything built of any for tenants. I, it, it, they're, they're progressive. I sure they drive a Prius and they probably recycle and maybe they have solar panels on their house. Just don't bring a tenant on their block. And you think I'm not exaggerating? And you know, I got to read about this one. This one guy. It almost seems like a spoof. It almost seems like a spoof. Maybe you remember reading about this guy, who uh, is a surfer. They run a surfing company. Uh, he has a long beard, long hair, and uh, the thing must have gone. But anyway, here's a guy who looks like a hippie, and he's out there saying. These, these, we don't want these homeless people. There's a parking lot two blocks from the beach, a surface parking lot, which six months a year or nine months a year doesn't get much parking because people aren't going to the beach in November for the most part, right? And these neighbors are fighting to the death to, to, to prevent nonprofit housing 
for homeless people to go on that site. And fortunately, Councilmember Mike Bowden was a strong advocate of it. But if Venice Community Housing didn't have a visionary leader named Becky Dennison, some of you may know her because she used to work downtown, uh, a real visionary heart, and she was brilliant, and I described everything she did in the book, we wouldn't have had that in Venice. If, you know, so like, wait, where are the homeless people? They're in Venice, but we're not going to build. And these Venice people all kept saying, this doesn't, we're all for homeless people, but we have too many services in our neighborhood. They don't have any services. There's a lot of tech companies that have moved into Venice, you might know. Snapchat, Google, they're, they're all there, and Oracle's there. You'd think that they would want to have something done about this. I mean, because there has to be more, but what's happened in Los Angeles is what, uh, Mike Davis calls the Sunset Bolsheviks, the powerful homeowner groups have stopped housing of all income levels to protect their single family home zoning. And you know, just recently I saw these, this, these hillside groups, these are these wealthy homeowners, the wealthiest homeowners in LA. You might have followed this, some of you. They're out there trying to stop accessory dwelling units in the city. I mean, these folks aren't content with, you know, this little thing not in my backyard, they don't want tenants in anybody's backyard. And I keep mentioning this because whenever people talk about neighborhood character, they're talking about a tenant-free neighborhood. That's elitist and exclusionary. It's also racist because let's look at the, let's look at the, I don't know if Pavo was here, the, uh, is Pavo here from LA? Uh, he was gonna come, the professor from, from UCLA Lusk, uh, Luskin. But he, he wrote a study about who goes to these neighborhood councils. You have 97 neighborhood councils in L.A. Anyone here in a neighborhood council? I guess you don't fit the demographic. You're too young. Uh, uh, too young and too many non-whites. But the, uh, these neighborhood councils, which have enormous power, he did a study, and all they're, about, all they're there for, and they're officially recognized by the city, they're there to stop apartments from being built. That's why they exist. And... You know, it's, it's, what's incredible is in many of these neighborhoods, I was just over here, you know, in these neighborhoods, like, you go to, like, Los Feliz, it's like, there's fourplexes everywhere, and it's, they're beautiful, and they're great, and a lot of these places were built before the zoning changed to ban apartments. And you have this phenomenon, it's not just in L.A., I discuss in, in, in the book all the cities, Portland, Minneapolis, right now Minneapolis, you guys should follow at Wedge Live on Twitter. Does anyone follow at Wedge Live on Twitter? At Wedge Live. You will have more fun. You will be you will be grateful for me for bringing this up because this guy he posts videos of these hearings of the people coming out against housing, and I include one in my book. I talk about it because I I, I was so blown away by this. I, I've watched it probably fifteen times. If I showed you this hearing, you would think they were trying to put a drug rehab center in an elderly community. People, they're all white, are breaking down and crying, but they're afraid this project's going to be, it's a 10-unit apartment. And they're saying things like, who's going to handle all the 311 calls? And what about all the mattresses that are going to be left in front of the building? I mean, talking about renters as if they're kind of some kind of, don't have social skills or something. And then I find out after the video, the neighborhood is 80% tenant. And yet these people go out there to stop tenants in this neighborhood. It's not just homeowner neighborhoods. And it's like, we have to call this out, all of us. 
and not being, we're a little too polite. And we say like, oh, they just want to keep their neighborhood character. They like their being all single family homes. No, no, they don't want tenants in their neighborhood. And that's why we have to change the zoning in all the cities I write about in the book. Because if you allow single family home zoning to continue, what you're saying to the affordable housing producers, you want to have affordable housing people, you want to have lower income people, working people, middle class people in high opportunity neighborhoods, you're saying, guess what? You can't live there. I don't care how many Prop HHs you pass. I don't care how many bonds, we, one and two, that we approve. These neighborhoods are off limit to apartments. Now, we'll let you build over here. You can build, what's the height limit in Boyle Heights? 30 feet? You don't get a lot of people in 30 feet. You gotta be 80 feet or something, you know? So I think we have to be more strategic politically. And you know, one of the challenges we have here in Los Angeles, to be very blunt about it, is that the housing community has not been successful enough politically. And I talk in the book uh, about the great move you guys made switching your elections to so that the local elections coincide with the state and federal, because that was a huge problem in LA. If your council members are being elected in off-year elections, who votes in off-year elections? We know who votes. So they only listen to the people who vote. The fact that districts has tenants is pretty irrelevant because they don't vote in off-year elections. Now it's all going to be synchronized, so that'll help. But overall, uh, when I say to people, who's the champion on the city council for getting more affordable housing, working class housing, who is the champion? Who do people think the champion is? Do you have a champion? Yes, he is. He is the best I've heard. But you know, you're, you're this guy who's now kind of a bit of bit of trouble, who's our a little bit of trouble. Uh, uh, I don't know where it's going, but you know, if you had the right person in that district, what a difference they can make for Boyle Heights. My God. So here we have this weird thing where L.A. is you know a progressive city. Everyone's a Democrat. Labor is strong. So, but. Housing determines who gets to live in the city and who has to commute an hour and an hour and a half because they can't live in the city. And I write about a number of people, Aureli Hernandez, I don't know if Aureli's here, uh, and others who have really good paying jobs but have this like hour commute because the opportunities, if you want to live anywhere near where the jobs are in LA, it, it, it's not affordable. So. Why are we doing this? When I see these long traffic commutes, I think, well, wait, we got all this, these, I see so many vacant parking lots around here. I mean, a million vacant parking lots around uh, Boyle Heights in that area. Like, build housing in all of them. Who's against that? Well, you know, the greatest way to make money in our society in these cities is be a homeowner and don't let any, anything get built because your values go up. In San Francisco, in the last six years, the equity in people's homes has gone up a million dollars. You know, you can't, there's almost no need, there's almost no house for sale in San Francisco under a million dollars. Been a great strategy for those neighborhood groups saying don't build in my backyard because that means if you want to live in that neighborhood there's a very small number of places you can buy. And that inflates the price. So what we really are seeing is that that's why I call it a generational divide. Boomer homeowners, primarily boomer homeowners, have adopted and implement and enforcing a series of land use policies that force millennials who are unionized janitors, unionized hotel workers, 
nurses, teachers. Can, can teachers live in L.A.? Ooh, live a teacher. I know that. Is anyone here a teacher? My my kids. Mike, you're no, you probably could afford to buy when you came, but. Oh, my, my kids are both public school teachers in San Francisco, and you know, San Francisco can't keep its teachers because they can't afford to live. And of course, what do we expect from our teachers? We want them to stay after school and deal with parents' issues. We want them to sponsor clubs. Well, if they have an hour, an hour and a half commute, how can they do that? So, so let's just take a step back and think, and this is why I wrote this book, what are we doing here? We're saying that we're going to not build housing, so that requires our teachers, nurses, firefighters, unionized workers to leave the city and then commute in and then leave at the end of the day. What is all, what is all, what is all this local politics for? The people which we thought we were helping can't be here anymore. So that's why I wrote Generation Priced Out. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you about, I mean, I, I do think LA has a great upside because you have land. You know, if I'll just give you my prescription. The labor movement runs Los Angeles, and we have to get labor more involved in getting housing at Sacramento and the local level, because uh, it's been a real problem that we have people in Sacramento, legislators, who have a 100% labor record, but they vote against tenants on bills, like the Ellis Act bill in 2014. It was a crushing defeat. A guy named Tony Mendoza, who used to work for the teachers' union, was a deciding vote against us. Because you know, Democrats are a majority, so we, we don't need Republicans. It's Democrats voting against tenants. And so, uh, you know, my previous book, which is up here, Beyond the Fields, uh, two books ago, about Maria Elena Dorazo. She's one of the stars of that book. And, you know, she's been elected now, which is great. I mean, I'm a real champ. I just love her. And, uh, but people have to get more aggressive here and really push for housing. And to say, well, we only want affordable housing, but, you know, we went to the state legislature so L.A. could have inclusionary housing. Does everyone know what inclusionary housing is, where when private developers build, a percentage of units have to be affordable? Well, there was a court ruling which your city attorney, not San Francisco city attorney, but your city attorney said, L.A. can't do that because of this court ruling. We spent years trying to overrule what's called the Palmer case. In 2017, I was jubilant because it was overruled. Now L.A. can have inclusionary housing. You guys don't have it which means that everything that's getting built, there's no affordable units on site. Unless it's part of a separate deal. Yeah. Actually, there is. Uh, uh, on Ibar, just north of Harmony Boulevard, there is, uh, I believe, 13 units that are, that are affordable. Well, it could be because there's a deal with the developer through a density bonus. Correct. And, and the density bonus does create affordable units. And But I'm saying that I'm talking about that. And it just if you build anything, it has to have a prescribed number. And you know, some people say, well, that could slow development, but you could do 10%. I mean, because what we're talking about is, do people think we should have segregated neighborhoods? Is there anyone here who believes in segregated neighborhoods? I, I don't think so. I don't. Are, are there anyone running for office in LA who says I'm for segregated neighborhoods? I haven't heard it. But the zoning law creates segregated neighborhoods in a different way. It's not based on race, it's based on income. So we achieve the same result. We're doing a great job creating segregated neighborhoods in LA, economically and racially. And as a progressive city, people need to say that's wrong. So that's the big picture. Uh, what I found in writing this book, everything I just said about LA, 
pretty much applies to all the other cities now san francisco has done a phenomenal job of protecting tennis protecting mental housing i mean and just to make that point l a doesn't even have restrictions on condominium conversions there's no numerical limit in los angeles on how many condominiums you can convert why is that i don't get it i read all the time about rental housing being demolished rent controlled housing being demolished in l a and not being replaced why is that so there's a lot on the tenant side that l a hasn't done that san francisco has done but we don't build housing either anywhere nearly as much seattle builds housing but the state of washington like the state of texas like the state of oregon like the state of minnesota have one thing in common they bar cities from having rent control do people know that seattle can't have rent control they need it the city council wants to do it how do you say God, our city is being so unaffordable, we're really concerned about affordability, but of course we don't, we don't want you to have rent control. That doesn't really work. So there's a lot that we could do, and I think the upside is huge, and I lay it out in the book, and I, I am optimistic about it. I lay it out in all the cities. There just was a series of hearings all week in Minneapolis, and our side kicked ass, let me tell you. We, we had more people out. They were going after those boomer homeowners, uh, and, and we're going to win, and politically, Electorally, the, the, the council's with us. And I want to just leave at this point before we do questions. I have a chapter on Austin, another place that no one ever thought as a uh, upscale city. Remember, anyone see the movie Slacker? Set in Austin. Remember, because Austin was a place you could be a slacker and, and afford to live housing. Guess what? No more. No more. All the tech workers I talk about, uh, uh, people, ever, it's in, I have a story of, of families who lived in a 244 unit rental project right over this, the, the famous lake with the bats and everything, beautiful walking for their dogs. Well, landlord tells them, we're evicting you, get out, and we're tearing down your building. And Texas has a law where you can't, cities can't pass any demolition ordinances. Texas is something else, let me tell you. So anyway, they evict all the tenants. Guess who's, they build a new apartment building. Guess who's living there? Oracle employees. Oracle came in. And there's an or giant, on the site of that 244-unit apartment building, Oracle has a 10,000-foot headquarters. Oracle came in. They were there for four hours. They were there for a few hours, about 40,000 acres. So, so they had an election. So there was a whole process in Austin, because there's a lot of good activists. There's a great guy named Greg Cesar who's on the council. Who's someone in L.A. needs a person like him, a real leader uh, on, on affordable housing. And he comes out and three-year process called Code Next. It's revising it. It basically would break up every single family home neighborhood and allow like fourplexes, right? Nothing radical. Homeowners in Austin are just like the ones in L.A. I mean, Austin and L.A. are very similar. They're just, they, they're, they, they get powerful. They're used to running a city. And this past August, the mayor of Austin says the process, is, instead of just trying to pass Code Next, he says, the process has gotten so vicious and nasty, we just have to disband it. Three years of work for nothing, spoke right? Because it's just because the homeowners made it so vicious and nasty, they get to keep their single-family home zoning. So there's an election this last November. The mayor, who's pro-housing, is running against the leader of the neighborhood opposition, the head of the neighborhood council, the one who has the famous line, we need to keep Austin for Austin. 
i mean not those newcomers not those millennials course it's also not those immigrants and of course all these progressive cities these homeowners say they're all pro immigrant they just don't want to go anyplace to live but they're all for immigrants just don't house them in their city that's a fact i mean there's no place how can you be pro immigrant and be welcoming and not give them housing so the election is held and i'm thinking it might be close and if you look at my section at austin the book i say austin's at a crossroads i thought the mayor would win he won by 40 percent 60 to 20 that's how the electorate felt about housing versus not building housing Oh, at those two o'clock on Wednesday afternoon meetings, oh, the homeowners are great at taking those over. But when it came to a democratic process, they lost. And I think the same is true in L.A. I think that you, the majority is with you. Unfortunately, too many of your elected officials are controlled by a small number of powerful and wealthy homeowners. But you can break through that through organizing and the like. So you have a huge upside. Let's make it happen. And I'll take questions from there. Thank you. Yes. So, um, I know condo conversions are a big issue with New York City, but New York City did a really good model on rent control. Is there anything to learn from New York? Well, she asked if there's anything to learn from New York. Here's what you learn. Just because a mayor says they're progressive, base it on their actions, because that man's been a nightmare. A nightmare. My, I have to confess, I make mistakes like everybody else. I thought it was amazing when, when, when Bill de Blasio got elected. I, I knew of his background. He was the first cousin of John Wilhelm of Unite Here. When I thought, oh my God, this is great. He's worse than Bloomberg because people think he's progressive and he gets away with like this crazy Amazon thing. I talk in the book about a terrible thing about he did in Crown Heights where the African-American community that elected him, he just betrayed you know, one of the big issues that I say in the book is whenever there's public land in gentrifying neighborhoods, it has to go for affordable housing. So you have a gentrifying neighborhood. Like, let's just say there was public land in this neighborhood. This is where you want to build affordable housing because that's the only opportunity. Lower-income people are going to be able to live in this neighborhood. You do not build luxury condos on public land. Does everyone agree with that? Does, anyone, does that sound like a controversial thing? Why didn't Bill de Blasio get it? Well, read the story. It's, it's not a happy story. Uh, uh, you know, I did find, i got to read this to you. I did find, this guy, John Moore, anyone know who John Moore is? He actually put the name Hollister in the Abercrombie and Fitch uh, shirts. Uh, the, near, the LA Times described him as a shaggy-haired, full-bearded surfer who, listen to this, a launcher of ethically-minded brands and fashion lines. And this guy, his big thing is he doesn't want anything. These, these housing for homeless is potentially devaluing my home and putting me and my children in jeopardy. Oh, what kind of ethics is this guy practicing? This is what you have in Venice. You have a whole bunch of people like that. But in New York City would not be a model. Uh, we've done a lot of great things in San Francisco. Read that part of chapters of the book on San Francisco. Don't don't follow New York City. I can't <laughs> cite I can't cite anything that I'd use them as a model for, except for electing politicians who betray constituencies. They, they've done a great job at that. Uh, there is actually one good story in New York City. I have in the book a very courageous. I got to tell you this story too. Do we have time? Keep telling. Yeah. I got to tell you this story. Do people know the Nolita neighborhood? Mm -hmm. I love it. Uh, no, no, you don't, you don't go to New York City. Get out there. It's, it's, 
very upscale. It used to be an old Italian neighborhood. Now it's very upscale. It's north of Little Italy. Okay. It's also east of Soho. Like, okay, so very upscale now. And there was a land in the early 90s that was set aside for affordable housing on a vacant lot. But because things had to take so long with affordable housing, it wasn't until recent years that uh, they, then the, the city said, we're not using the lot, we don't have the money right now. And they let this like upscale architecture firm put like statues in the lot. So here's what happens. The neighbors take that lease they got to put up for statues. The city says, now we want to develop it, bring the affordable housing. They, the neighbors go in, put all this money in, they create the Elizabeth Street Garden. And there is a fanatical campaign to save the Elizabeth oh, Street God. Garden, which is fake. It was, it was affordable housing and a temporary use for, for this statue company. But then when they found out they could make it open space, and you know, people, these actors like Gabriel Byrne, like this guy earned $10 million a year. He's doing a video about how important it is to take away senior housing for their wealthy people and their au pairs to hang out on Nolita. And Margaret Chin, a heroic council member, stood by the seniors. And the village, the, the whole village was up in arms against Margaret Chin. She's a traitor. The wealthiest people I have in the book, people who earn millions of dollars connected, they run museums, we're all getting involved in this. All the protocol in the world. Margaret Chin stayed firm and she almost lost, you know, in New York, if you're a council member, you almost always get reelected. She almost lost because all the village people ran her as the enemy of the people. What was her sin? For demanding senior housing where in the early 90s they said they would build it and it's being built. So there are some good officials in New York. Not Bill de Blasio. Yeah. Um, so one of the groups that I belong to, um, uh, and almost the Snow LA, is looking at how we can get the city to use a lot of the vacant units that are in the city of Los Angeles. We have over 300,000 vacant units in the county of Los Angeles. And how we can get the city to actually use them for like affordable housing. And I don't know if in San Francisco is... Well, go ahead. I, I will tell you that, you know, my organization runs 21 SROs, and I, I, I found more vacant building. I mean, but here's the thing. There's some myths about vacant units, and, and it comes up a lot about because a unit is vacant at a particular moment doesn't mean that the owner's interested in leasing it to the city. You know, we have a master lease program, which I started with Billy Brown in the late 90s, and uh, it's been an enormous success. But you have to have owners who want to lease it. So when I always hear, there's so many vacancies, it doesn't really matter. But vacancies mean nothing if they're not available for rent. And the way things have gone in LA is you have so many high rent areas. The city should be acquiring leasing properties for homeless people. I don't know, they do it in Skid Row, I assume. Maybe it's only purchased. Do they have a leasing program in LA? It doesn't make any sense. I don't know why not. Gavin Newsom's our new governor. He did it. I did a ton of leases when he was our mayor. And maybe he'll put money, state money. It does cost money, but it's, it takes four years. I mean, that Venice Community Housing Project, they're not even going to get their final approval until July 2019. I mean, the gestation period for the affordable units is like five years before anything comes online. We've got thousands of people on the street in L.A. right now. If you lease those hotels, by June, they can be fully occupied. So I don't know why it hasn't happened in L.A. Someone should ask the mayor why you don't have a hotel leasing program. I, I, I don't know. Oakland doesn't either. Oh, uh, I, the same owners we have in San Francisco, they own property in Oakland, they want to lease. It's money. 
much money L.A. has, you know, they, they want to use the bond money. Well, they can use it for this, can't they? I, I don't know. Someone should find that out. Good story for Capital and Maine, Steve. Okay. <laughs> Steve Mickle, you guys read hopefully with Capital Maine. Hopefully, Steve Mickle, the editor, is there. Make sure you read at capitalmaine.com. It's an invaluable uh, resource for LA News. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, you mentioned about the need to build affordable housing, and I know like one of the main programs is the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program. Um, but I know with that program, uh, Frontline CBS did a whole investigation about the predatory nature of that program because it requires developers to be involved, and there's just total lack of protections for tenants in that program. I'm wondering what is there a fight well, for each Well, I'm, I'm sorry to say that that was a really misguided PBS story, but before I get to that, I want to make a really important point that I'm glad you reminded me of. You know, most tenants in this country suffer affordability problems because they're not getting the federal assistance they're entitled to. 75% of families and individuals who are entitled to federal assistance for housing don't get it. That's why we have a homeless problem, that's why we have double, we have all the problems we're talking about. This book is about people who would not be, who earn too much to be eligible. Because if you're in 40,000, you're not eligible. A teacher in San Francisco, a starting teacher, earns 60, but you can't get rent, you can't, you can't even get an SRO room for 60 to live by yourself. So that, but I mean, you know, we do have this bigger picture. The low-income housing tax credit is a vital resource. Uh, you know, when, when, when a lot of times when, when we, we sort of cheer these, fed, these exposés of the, of the problem with federal programs like public housing, all it ends up doing is cutting the funding for them. The low-income housing tax credit occurred because after Reagan killed the HUD budget, there was like no affordable housing money. The only way we can get Republicans to support anything was through the low-income housing tax credit. So it is the major, the major, people often say on the left, like, it's really bad. Why is the major source of affordable housing in this country a tax credit for developers? Well, it's because we couldn't get anything else politically. And there's a reality. Housing money isn't easy to get. We've been starved for 40 years at the federal level. 40 years. So, you know, every federal program you can find something, but we need that, that, that program needs to be expanded. That's what I meant. Yeah, it's just we need to have necessary protections. Yeah, and yeah exactly. It needs to be expanded, absolutely. And, you know, what do I do? The reason I wrote Generation Price Out, and I encourage you to, to pick up a copy tonight, is that... I'm really talking about solutions, and you know, there's so many books that come out about uh, how the, the, the horrors of gentrification, and I told my editor, I don't want to write that, but what's the point? I only want to write about solutions, and I, and I mean, making sure that public land is used for affordable housing, making sure that you have the, the rental housing protections in place, it would be seemingly easy to pass here in, in LA, or at least put pressure on the representatives to pass them, taking upzoning neighborhoods so that, so that I mean, the notion that you have a two-story height limit in a city with, that has traffic jams going miles long is crazy. You know, I'm telling you right now, I don't want to be exploiting a fire, but I'm telling you what the state legislature is saying is that they're seeing these fires out in paradise. They're saying, we've got to do more infill housing. It doesn't work to build in those fire areas. There's going to be more fires out in those areas. And so we have to think about realism, being real, and to tell people... It's perfectly fine for you to commute an hour in traffic because we want to have a 20-foot height limit on that parking lot is, is, is wrong. And we need all of us to raise up because I think the majority is with us. This is not one of those issues where the majority is against us. The majority is with us. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree that we need some massive zoning ordinance shifts to allow for housing. 
wondering what you think. If we increase the supply of housing, do you think that the prices for housing, um, like apartments I'm talking about, not single family units, but do you think the price for housing will decrease? Absolutely. Now, I want to be clear on one thing, because people always say, like, I always talk a bit about Seattle where prices have gone down. Prices are at very high levels because we haven't built much housing. So when I say it's going to increase, if the statistics from San Francisco's rents aren't going up anymore. In the last few years, we built more housing. Mm. Denver. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that the apartment that goes for three thousand is now going to go for two thousand. It means the apartment that's going for three thousand one year will be three thousand two years later. So, we it's going to take a while to make up for it. But supply absolutely makes a difference. I mean. What are the product to supply? I mean, this notion that people say we can't build our way out of a housing crisis. Well, yeah, you can't just build. You also have to protect and be strategic. Like, we should have a master leasing program for homeless people in Los Angeles. That, that's obvious. doesn't require building anything. It just requires taking control of, of available buildings. So I think there, unfortunately, there's people who just like, yeah, I'll tell you what it really is about. There was a poll recently, the LA Times did, where it found that, you know, most people think that don't really want to build housing because they, and they, the reason they give, those who oppose housing, the reason they give is developers greed. Do people see that, that story? But, and we always hear that the main reason people don't want to build housing is developers greed. Well, here's the thing. Pollster comes to you. You're one of these homeowners, the Hillside Homeowners Association. You haven't let anything be built. You're making all kinds of money on your house because you're not letting anything be built. So they come to you and they say, what's the cause of affordability? Are you going to tell them... I'm really selfish. I don't let anything get built, and I'm making gobs of profits from property values. So it's really my selfishness. Or you're going to say it's developer's greed. How many are you going to say it's their own selfishness? That's what it really is. And, you know, I'm a boomer, and it, 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 it's sad for me to see the selfishness of people who don't care. Now, increasingly, boomers are seeing, like in San Francisco, their kids can't live in the city, which means their grandkids, if they have them, won't be able to live in the city. And so we have the West Side, which is heavily Chinese-American immigrant, and they want to live near their families. And they're, gonna, they're more supportive of letting apartments be built. And again, these are lots that are 40 feet height limit, and the current zoning says you can only build a mansion. Why would we want a mansion instead of a four-unit rental building? I mean, I don't understand. If it was framed that way, people would say, well, I wouldn't be for the mansion. But the zoning in liberal, progressive San Francisco 53% of our residential available land is zoned only for mansions. And that, that's why I say progressive cities need to wake up. So oh, wait, you haven't asked me yet. Go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry, I came late. That's okay. Uh, we may have answered this already, but okay, I live on Hyperion Avenue. Uh, every day around rush hour, it's That's a really good point. People hear this question because I will tell you that a lot of people oppose new housing because of traffic, not realizing that the reason you like Austin has so much traffic and I think LA is people are commuting long distances to get to their jobs. If you are building infill and people don't have to take a car, San Francisco just passed is this passing getting rid of parking minimums. And People are all for it because a lot of millennials don't want to drive. Now, you don't have a transit system here. I'm aware of that. 
Well, I would just say, if we look at Trader Joe's, I don't think too many bridge and tunnel people shop daily at the Trader Joe's. Well, you're saying it's local traffic. Yeah. I mean, look, the big thing that struck me when I was been here just a short time is like, where are the bike lanes? It's like, it's like, I, I mean, I don't quite get it. Where are the bike lanes? I, I, you got flat surfaces here, and uh, where is? And, and it was explained to me last night that well, it's the car culture, but the car culture is kind of killing us here, and uh, I mean, really killing us. I mean, literally with the climate change, with the gas emissions, and you know, I think you got like a lot of people here look very, very capable of riding a bike. And we got this flat street right here. And, you know, we were talking about Berlin earlier. Berlin doesn't turn its streets over to cars. It turns its streets over to bikes. And they don't have this craziness that we have here. And so, is anyone here involved in biking? I mean, I know that, you know, all cities, I mean, New York City did an amazing job on bike, bike paths. And Portland is moving forward. Portland just this week got 1,000 parking spots eliminated for use for bike paths. So. But there's constituencies pushing people, and, and maybe LA needs to get more into that because uh, it doesn't have to be this way. If you had bike paths, more people would be taking their bike to Trader Joe's. Yeah. So we've got a lot of poor communities, a history here in LA and now Orange County. These developers are using eminent domain to create these megastructures. And then I grew up here. I know when you go through these neighborhoods in Orange County, you can't move in the traffic. It's worse than L.A. Because yeah, there is mega, I don't know who's living there, yeah. but they are. I will tell you, a lot of those mega projects have parking on site. But I'll, I'll just say this, this notion that the traffic problem is solved by not building housing, that's wrong. And the, the traffic problem is everybody on earth wants to live here. Well, right, right, right. But, yeah, but, but you know what? If you, if, you built, if you built an eight-story project, across from Mariachi Plaza, Bordel Project, across from Mariachi Plaza in that parking lot I'm telling you about, they could walk to the metro rail right there and go wherever they need to go. I know LA, when I, when I grew up in LA, it was like a word, an article of faith in the 60s. No, LA is not like New York. Public transit won't work here. My father was adamant against public housing. He goes, we don't have a downtown. So there's no central hub like New York City. So we went all those decades without building transportation. But now LA is really the, in the national leader in building more. So there is more. But traffic, we, we've, the, LA hasn't built housing all these years and we have the worst traffic in the United States. So obviously not building housing has failed to ameliorate traffic. Let's take a different approach. That's what I would say. And traffic in Austin is, I mean, you don't think of Austin as a traffic place. Seattle has horrific traffic. We're not being strategic because well, we're not doing enough infill housing. So I think you so, have to say that to overbuild, you're going to have to have traffic. You're going to have to have transportation infrastructure. Well, because well, there's yeah. no way that I'm going to buy right. the argument. But we often have transit transportation infrastructure, and yet we don't build on those in, on those bus lines. I mean, that's what that you know. So I, I I'm just saying that I look at L.A. It's an amazing city. There's too much traffic. I mean, I was driving here yesterday from. I guess I was going from Highland Park to here, from Los Feliz, and thank God I wasn't going the other way. Uh, it was like on the passing through. I, I mean, that traffic jam was like six lanes, and it went on like, I mean, it's probably still going. I mean, it's like, I don't know how far I went, maybe into the next state. I mean, I just like, whoa. And it was like, I was going my direction. It was like, how much I'll travel. But I've seen traffic jams here that we've done something wrong. 
that we have this way of living. So what I recommend, I don't want to, anymore, if there's one more question, I can take it, but uh, happy to talk after. Did you have a question? No. Yeah. said earlier, maybe you missed it. Yeah, we're not using New York as an example. It's in the book. No, I mean, New York, what they did in Chelsea, they, they built 30-story buildings that have private swimming pools for people who never lived there. They have building after, but so, no, but the, I mean, I, I do address in length your, your argument about the issue, that, but I'll just say that in all the cities I mentioned, except for Seattle and Denver, we haven't really, like, neighborhoods became gentrified without building any housing. Because when you don't build, when you don't increase the supply at all and the population and jobs dramatically increase, LA's out of a million residents since 1970. A million. How much housing is it built? So I think there's this misleading view that says building housing is actually the cause when in fact, and that's why we need inclusionary housing, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, all these neighborhoods in San Francisco, there was no housing built and they all gentrified. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm happy to talk privately because I'd like you to, you know, uh, don't want to give your evening ahead of you. Uh, but again, if you're interested in the book, please buy it here. I can sign it for you. And uh, you know, we want to support Skylight Books for offering venues for people like me. So uh, thanks very much. And I'm always, let me, two more things. You can always reach me if you have a question about a tenant issue or anything, randy at thclinic.org. And my Twitter handle is at beyondcron. And if you want to really follow what goes on, at uh, all, I always am tweeting about all these cities, what's going on, and it'll keep you up to date because you can learn from other cities. That's why I wrote the book with all the cities because you can really learn from these other cities the good things they're doing at Beyond Cron for my Twitter handle. So thank you all and have a good evening. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.